morning, church. Do you want Jesus to walk with you? Amen. Hear these words of comfort from Psalm 86. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Please join me as we go to the Lord for the prayers of supplication. Lord, it's, uh, you know every need that we have, and yet you still call us to bring those needs to you in prayer. You see the pain, you see the joys, you see the valleys, you see the sufferings, you see it all, and yet you still call us to bring everything to you. In prayer, in prayer, Lord, we admit that we are not self-sufficient people. In prayer, we, we admit that we need more than just performance and productivity. And in prayer, we, we admit we, we need more than, than, than resources and nice jobs and, and nice neighborhoods, nice relationships. In prayer, we admit we don't place our trust in man and in the systems that man creates. We are acknowledging our need of you. We are acknowledging that we need the, the one true God to speak on our behalf, to intercede on our behalf. And so, Lord, we bring to you the sufferings that we go through and the sufferings in our city, the sufferings in our country and the sufferings in the world and the persecutions of our brothers and sisters around the world. And we ask that you move, that you will heal, that you will give wisdom, that you will provide, that our faith it's more than just pie in the sky. It is real. And Father, we pray that you will help our unbelief because we don't always expect you to move. We don't. Sometimes we trust you as far as we can throw a rock. So Holy Spirit, Heal our unbelief. Heal it. And help us to pray with, with an expectation that our God will move. Now the answer may be no, the answer may be wait, but you will move. And so we pray that you will give wisdom to us. That you will provide jobs for those who need jobs. Those who who are sick, there's a flu running around in our country, and we pray for the kids who have it, that you will heal them and give wisdom to the doctors and nurses who are tending to them. We have friends and families who have been diagnosed with cancer, Lord. We pray for healing. We have friends, and we know people who are homeless today, don't have a place to sleep, sleeping in tents. Lord, we, we pray that you will provide for them. We pray into the sufferings of the world, into the injustices of the world, with the expectation and knowing that you are still able. Help us not to be content with evil. 
Help us not to say, well, that's just the fall. That's just the way it is. It was not created to be that way. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come not just to give individual salvation. You have come to bring shalom to all of creation. Thank you for that. And I pray that we will continue to see glimpses of that on this side of heaven. David says he he know that he see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Help us see that goodness in the land of the living because sometimes it's hard. If we're honest, we can say it is hard. It's hard to see it. When you see so much suffering and pain and heartache. Lord, let us see your goodness in the land of the living. And let that continue to give us hope to persevere in and through this life. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open it to um, Psalm 5. It's not Psalm 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Again, to this, the service today, the sermon today with a, a question. And the, and the question is this, are you a liable Christian? Wait, what, what, what do you mean, pastor? Liable Christian? I'm not following you. I don't get it. Liable is a written or broadcast false statement about a person. That, that damages that person's character and, and reputation. We see this often in, in politics and, and on social media. It's character assassination. It's a smear campaign. Christians who don't know who they are in Jesus are liable. They run a smear campaign against themselves. Christians who hold on to false beliefs about who they are in Christ are liable. They assassinate their own character. You see, I'm, I'm using liable as an acronym, and it's an acronym that stands for this. Low information Christians, low information believers, easily lost. Low information believers, easily lost. You see, low information believers, they, they engage life with a low IQ who they are in Christ. They engage the Christian life with this low IQ. That's why some turn to legalism, using God's law for favor. That's why others turn to antinomianism, putting God's law in the trash can. That's why some create a conflict between God's law and God's grace because they don't know who they are in Jesus and they don't believe who they are in Jesus. All Christians on the face of this earth, are in union with Christ. That's an amen statement. In union with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3, 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. Believers are truly are in Jesus. And Jesus is truly in believers. But do you believe that? Believe that. That, that they, they identify with him in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his lordship and his glory. We share in Jesus' victory if you are a Christian. Do you believe it? That he himself is the source and fountainhead of our life. And so Christians engage all of life while standing on their union with Jesus. You have to. You engage all of life standing on who you are in Christ. You read instead of the Bible by standing on your union with Christ. Do you believe it? Do you do it? Every Christian in this room needs to be standing on their union with Christ as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you don't, you're going to be a liable Christian. Low information believer, easily lost. Don't be liable. Don't accuse me of doing that. If you are a non-Christian here, then this message and all the messages that that are going to come are invitation for you to take hold of Jesus' hands in saving faith. Because he alone is the way. God's way to everlasting life. God's way to dealing with your sin. Jesus is the way of hope, love, peace, justice, and reconciliation. And his hands are extending out to you. Grab hold of them in faith. Grab hold of them in faith. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches about the convictions of the way. Convictions of the way. And these convictions are the way of Christ. And these convictions that he talks about in in these three chapters are for all believers, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, gender, age, or economic status. They're for all of us. And these convictions begin with the Beatitudes of the Way here in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Last week, we talked about what these Beatitudes mean collectively. So if you haven't, if you wasn't here last week, you need to go to the website and listen to that sermon. Okay, all these sermons are connected. Expositional preaching, that's what I'm doing. It's all connected. But today, we're going to work our way through each of the Beatitudes, focusing today on verse 3 and verses 10 through 11. So here's God's word, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and, and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others speak out against you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's perfect, holy, inerrant word. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of it. Holy Spirit, this again, come to you again. Now asking that you will take uh, the preached word to and apply it to all of our hearts. Um, because without you, Spirit, preaching has no power if you don't move. It has zero power if you are not moving. You are the one who gives preaching power. Because you have to take the word and apply it to the hearts of God's people. You have to take the word and bring convictions to those who don't know Jesus. You have to do it. The counselor, the one who leads us in all truth. And I ask that you would do that today. That each of us here will receive from this sermon what they need to hear in order to go back out into this world and and engage and fight one more week. And I pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, I have a question for you. How many corners does a triangle have? Three. Yes, three corners. Now, the Beatitudes of the way are kind of like a triangle. It has three, they, have, they have three corners. Each corner of the triangle helps you understand the Beatitudes properly. All right, so I'm going to explain the three corners for you. Are you ready? Now, if you want the kids who like to take notes, this is your time to take notes. And if you like to draw, this is your time to draw. So the first corner of the Beatitudes It represents the great reversal of fortune that believers are waiting for when Christ returns. So that's the first corner. That the Beatitudes are something that Christians are waiting to experience when Christ comes back. The second corner is is that the second corner represents wisdom, virtue, and ethics. That's the second corner. And the third corner represents human flourishing. Human flourishing. Because the Beatitudes, they show us how to flourish in this life Jesus' way. Jesus' way. According to one professor, Jonathan Pennington, in these Beatitudes, he said Jesus is, is offering and inviting his hearers, hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Human flourishing is, is, I lost my place. Okay. Human flourishing, Jesus' way. That's what he's talking about. And we flourish not the American way. Please know that. Jesus' way is not the American way. It's not the political conservative way. It's not the political progressive way. It's not the socialist way, the capitalist way. It's not a denominational way. Jesus' way is God's way for his people. But do we believe it? And his people can flourish in this life despite circumstances and life experiences. And please understand something. Their flourishing does not come from self-righteousness and morality. That's another amen statement. Unless you think you're flourishing because you're good. 
It doesn't come from performance and productivity. It doesn't come from certain life experiences and circumstances. The flourishing in the Beatitudes is not based on the virtues and the qualities in these 12 verses. They are not the reason that we flourish. Verse 3, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit isn't the reason that you flourish. The flourishing doesn't come from being poor in spirit. Parables are a common teaching method that Jesus uses throughout his earthly ministry. And he uses this method to illustrate certain biblical truths. In Luke 19, verses 9 through 14, he, he, we find him using one of these parables. It's a parable about a, tax, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he tells this parable to people who trust in themselves that they are righteous and they treat others with contempt. Listen to what he says to them. He says, two men went up, in, went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or even, or heaven forbid, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I tithe on all my income. All my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to his eyes to heaven. But he beat, he beat his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. TVC Saints, which one of them is poor in spirit? The Pharisee or the tax collector? What do you think, kids? Who's poor in spirit? I want to hear the kids answer. No. It's not the Pharisee. It's a tax collector. See, the, the Pharisee approaches God in pride, while the tax collector approaches God in humility. Poor in spirit is about approaching and relating to God in the spirit of humility. It's not about being materially poor. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not beating yourself up because you still struggle with sin. Poor in spirit doesn't, doesn't, mean, you're, doesn't mean to be liable. doesn't mean to be a low-information believer, easily lost. And here's another point. Poor in spirit isn't you degrading yourself as a Christian by calling yourself certain names like dirty, nasty, filthy sinner. And that's something that some Christians do. Like they get pride. And, and, and talk about how filthy of, filthy of a sinner they are. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. It means what Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's what it means. Poor in spirit means having you know, self-awareness of your own brokenness and kneeliness and, and issues before God. It, it, it's, it's, it's swag. Is what I call it. Self-awareness with amazing grace. Swag. Poor in spirit is standing on your union with Christ. It's believing in your adoption 
into God's family, is committing to discipleship, is walking in dependency upon him, is seeing your continued need for Christ, is being grateful for his mercy and, and his grace, is related, is resting in the grip of Jesus' hands around your life, your whole life, your body and your soul. Poor in spirit is an attitude of humility and gratefulness that the Holy Spirit grows in all believers. And when he grows that, it squeezes out pride and self-reliance and self-righteousness and boasting in yourself. It's the way that believers are to approach and relate to God the Father. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's not the reason that believers can flourish in this life. Do you believe these things? Are you poor in spirit? Do you want to be poor in spirit? Do you want swag? Do you want to flourish Jesus' way? His hands are extending out to you, inviting you to receive him as Lord and Savior in faith, offering you a different way to live. All you got to do is take his hand. Jesus is the redeemer. He's making all things new. He's bringing redemption and shalom to all the creation. He alone is the atoning sacrifice for, for, for our sins. And he dies on the cross in your place. And, and only through him can you be forgiven and reconciled to God. In Matthew 4, Jesus began his earthly ministry with these words, repent. For the, before, before the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You come to saving faith in Jesus by confessing that your sin separates you from God and places you under his wrath. Please know that. If you don't know Jesus in faith, you are under God's wrath. And when you come to him in faith, he snatches you from under it. Okay, Because sin is a wall that only Jesus can tear down. He's the only one that can tear it down. Once you confess that, you repent of your sins, and then you submit to him as both Lord and Savior. You see, saving faith is the only way for you to be united in Jesus. Please know that. You cannot be united in him by being a good person and following a whole bunch of rules and going to different conferences and Bible studies. Nothing wrong with those things, but those things don't save you. Okay? There are a lot of people who go to conferences who don't know Jesus. There are a lot of people who go to church and don't know Jesus. Can't be in union with him without surrendering to him in faith first. Can't be poor in the spirit Jesus' way without faith in him. So you got to know him first. You got to know him first for yourself. Do you know him, grown-ups? Do you know him, kids? Because your mom and daddy's faith or your grandparents' faith won't save you. You have to know Jesus for yourself. You have to be your savior, your God, your king, your Lord. Has to be yours. Because either what either what I teach you each Sunday, kids, is real, or Pastor Alex is lying to you. At, one, at some point in your life, you're gonna have to come to face to face with that with that. Either this is true 
and you're going to believe it or are you just going to reject it? And that'll be your decision. Now, you can blame your parents for something in life, but you ain't going to be able to blame them for that because Pastor Addis told you how to get saved before you left this church. I'm telling you, you got to surrender your life to him in faith. It goes for my kids and all you. Jesus died for you so that you could be made right with God. And his hands are extending out to each and every one of you. All you got to do is take it. All you got to do is come. And when you come, he will receive you into his loving arms. You got to come, kiddos. After John the Baptist baptized Jesus, um, some of you know this, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it ain't like four temptations. And the second temptation has Jesus at the holy city, sitting on top of the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up that you strike your foot against a stone. You see, the enemy tempts Jesus to intentionally put himself in harm's way. He tempts Jesus to go, go look for suffering, Jesus. Won't you go looking for the hardship? That's foolishness. That's all kinds of crazy. And Jesus responds to the devil by saying, as it is written, you should not put the Lord your God That's what we will be doing if we made suffering and persecution the reasons that believers flourish in life. If we say I flourish because I'm suffering for Jesus, then that's you doing what the devil is tempting Jesus to do. Look at verse 10 with me, and I'm going to flesh this out. Flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are you when others speak against you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We will be guilty of doing what the enemy tempts Jesus to do if we believe flourishing comes from suffering and persecution. Intentionally, like putting yourself in harm's way. Intentionally looking for suffering and hardships. Please hear these words and please embrace them. Experiencing persecution for righteousness sake isn't the reason why believers flourish in life. That's not the reason. That's an amen statement. Okay? Neither is experiencing suffering from the words and hands of other people and their systems. Those things are not the reason that we can flourish in life. If we believe suffering and persecutions are the reason believers flourish, then we are liable. We're low-information believer easily lost. Diane Langberg says, suffering in and of itself is not good. It is wrong. It was not intended to exist. Death is not good. Abuse is not good. Violence is not good. Sometimes as Christians, we sound as if we think it's good. And we say these words. All things work together for the good of those who love God. God did not create this world to be a place for suffering and persecution and death and injustice. Read Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It was not created that way. 
It wasn't created to be a place where human beings would take each other's lives like we do. The world was created good. It was created perfect. But as we know, Genesis 3 happened. It would be good if we can just leave, stop, cut the Bible off in Genesis 1 and 2. But you have Genesis 3. The fall happened. Sin entered the world. Death enters the world. And now all people do experience evil, suffering, and hardships, and persecutions. And for Christians, some of us will be persecuted for the faith. We will be. Some of us will. And it's happening right now. Historically, it has always happened. And it is happening now for other believers around the world. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. No amen statements on that. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 10 uses the phrase, for righteousness sake. It means being like Christ in every area of life. Living under the influence of his lordship is being in the world like Jesus was in the world. It's doing life his way. And when you strive to do life his way, some people will criticize you for it. Everybody's good until you put Jesus' name on it. Okay? They love your good deeds until you say, well, Jesus needs to be Lord of that. Then all of a sudden, they're going to part ways with you. You will other all kind of evil against you falsely on his account. In, second, in John 15, Jesus says to the 12 and to us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, that the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Amen. This kind of suffering and persecution are experiences uh, all believers may encounter before they cross over to glory. Expect it. It's not abnormal. But don't go looking for it. Okay? It will find you eventually. Okay? They will find you eventually. You ain't got to go looking for it. It will find you soon enough. And when it does... I want you to remember these words from John 16, 33, where Christ says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Got to hold firm to that truth and, 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 and believe flourish because they suffer and are persecuted for the faith. They flourish because they have a Savior who has overcome. And in him they are victorious. And he can redeem Oh, your suffering and persecution, even in this in this life or in the life to come. That's what you hold on to. I do a lot of observing and reading on social media and news sites and blog posts these days. I, sometimes I engage people. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just read and I observe. And one of the things I, I've learned is that the devil lives in the comment sections. He lives in the comment sections. Even so, even in the Christian ones. See, it's, it's heartbreaking when suffering, attacks, and persecution come from the tongue and hands of other Christians. You know what I'm talking about. 
We are our own worst enemy. Many Christians in this country do this to each other on social media and podcasts and blogs all the time. We see it all the time between those who identify as progressive Christians or conservative Christians, the justice Christians or the justice-less Christians. You see, we can hold one another accountable in love without dragging each other through the mud as believers. We're not always our brother's keeper or our sister's keeper as Christians in this country. We're not always a safe place for each other at times. And you know why? Because we are liable Christians. Low information believers, easily lost. Don't know who we are in Christ. Don't know who other believers are in Christ so we can treat them like enemies. In Christ, all Christians are united in his body. All of them. Even the ones that get on your nerves. They're your brother and sister. And one day, they're going to be in glory just like you. In Christ, all Christians are brothers and sisters. In Christ, all Christians can flourish in, in his, this life his way. In verses 3 and verses 12, 10 through 12, the flourishing again doesn't come from being poor in spirit or come from suffering and persecution. The flourishing comes from these words, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit flourish because theirs is the kingdom in heaven. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake flourish because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what does the kingdom of heaven mean? It means the sovereign reign and rule of our God. Like his lordship, his kingship. But what does that mean, Pastor Alex? It means God's way. He sets the agenda. He sets the plans. He is the boss. He's in charge. And he's at work. It's his his great restoration and cosmic redemption in Christ. Because Christ ushers in the present realities of the kingdom with his first coming. That's why he begins his ministry in Matthew 4 with repent before the, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is at hand because Jesus is on the scene. Amen, Pastor. But as we also know, the kingdom has not come in its full expression. But it is here. It is here. And we get to experience that kingdom on this side of glory. But not in, not in its fullness. Revelations 11, 13 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is what's happening. That is what's happening. The kingdom of heaven will come in its fullness when Christ returns. So there's an already and not yet of the kingdom for all believers. Notice he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven in the future, but there's a present reality right now and that present reality is this all believers regardless of their ethnicity nationality gender age social status are at this moment equal citizens in the kingdom of heaven equal citizens there's no one percent within god's kingdom there's no working class in god's kingdom we all are the same Okay? The resume that you have here means nothing in God's economy. Okay? 
The resources you have here means nothing in his economy at all. It gets you nothing. Oh, you don't get first class. But you don't realize you become first class through faith in Christ. Okay? You're already first class if you know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you in coach. That's where you are. That's where you're going to be until you come to faith in him. So you are part of that kingdom. Luke 17, 21 says, the kingdom of God is in you. Philippians 3, 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And Colossians 1, 13 says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Everything about you is different now as a believer. Well, what else does that mean, Alex? That mean, what, else does that, what else does that mean, Pastor Alex? It means that all your allegiance is to Jesus. That's what it means. All your allegiance belongs to him. All your loyalty belongs to him. But what else does that mean, Alex? It means he, be- he owns your bank account. Oh, 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 toes are hurting. Your bank account is his bank account. Your time is his time. It all belongs to him. You say, well, I don't want it all to belong to him. Can't be your savior without being your Lord. He's both. Amen, sister. So for theirs is the kingdom of heaven means I live under the Lordship of Christ. You know what else it means? Your gender belongs to him. You don't get to pick and choose what it is. He owns that. Your sexuality, he owns that. All of it. There's nothing that you have in your life that you can say, I dictate what that is. No, God dictates what that is. And he has a way that it should be. And if it's not the way that it should be, he can redeem it. But you got to give it to him. Your marriage belongs to him. Your parenting belongs to him. All of it. Your dreams belong to him. Where you go to college belongs to him. How you spend your time belongs to him. All of it belongs to him. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven means you're under God's lordship. And that's why we can flourish. Because we are citizens of a country that we didn't have to break into. We were brought into it by the blood of the lamb. And that kingdom has no borders, no walls. Anybody can get in. But you got to get in through Jesus. Does that excite you? That you're cared for. That God has you. That even though you may suffer, even though you may be persecuted, it doesn't mean that you have been abandoned. Patient song about it. I want Jesus to walk with me. And he's walking with you. Even if you don't see it. Even if you don't feel it. He's walking with you. He's with you. That's a promise. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those words from Peter is what it means for you to experience the kingdom now. This is who you are. You're God's people. And and Christians in America, we have a hard time believing that. Because of how much comfort and ease we have here. We have other options. Because when you don't have, when you're not suffering for persecution or those things, you have other options. And we have a lot of options as American Christians. And I'll go ahead and say this. Whatever, if you put a, a, another adjective in front of your Christianity, you ain't living by the kingdom. If, you're, if you are, I'm a conservative Christian, I'm a progressive Christian, then you ain't living by the kingdom. Because if you live by the kingdom, you won't need those things. It will show it in the way you live your life who you are. We are truly God's people now. And that should encourage us, motivate us that we are God's people. That when you leave here today, you walking out of here as God's son, his daughter, if you know him in faith. You can walk with confidence. You can walk with your head up despite circumstances. Because you know that my God has not abandoned me. Oh, it hurts. I'm hurting. I'm struggling. But I know God is on my side and he will fight my battles. After Moses died, God had to raise up another leader to take Moses' place. And it's hard following in the footsteps of a great leader. So you can imagine the pressure that was going to be on the person that God raised up to take his place. And as you know, that person was Joshua. He had to step in to lead people into the promised land. Again, you can imagine the pressure and the fear and the anxiety that, that he may have was experiencing because, man, I'm not Moses. Man, Moses parted the Red Sea for crying out loud. Man, what am I going to do? I don't have a staff. But in, in the first chapter of Joshua, this is what the Lord tells Joshua. The Lord God said to him, Amen, sister. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For Yahweh, your Elohim, is with you wherever you go. And that is what it means for you to experience the kingdom on this side of glory. That God, your father, Yahweh, Elohim, is with you wherever you go. Let us pray. I thank you, Lord, that you are a covenant-keeping God and the promise that you made to Joshua, man, thousands of years ago, is still true today for us. That we can